Good evening and welcome to Resurrection Orthodox Presbyterian Church for evening worship tonight. Um, it's a joy to be able to welcome uh, Pastor Jeremiah Montgomery and the Montgomery family to worship with us tonight, and Pastor Montgomery will be uh, preaching, which I know will be a blessing. Now, I want to take any prayer requests there are before we begin. Can we pray for you? Yes, Tom. Uh, we've been praying for the Geyers and Elijah, and um, Jonathan would like prayer uh, for Elijah's sleep, that uh, that would begin to straighten out. He's been a little congested, that's made it a little more difficult. Um, and also, Denise's um, mother has been visiting to help, and um, that, with a new baby, can often be a little bit of a complicated situation because uh, you have sort of two stacks of moms and it has been a little bit. And so just pray that that, that would all go well also. All right. Thanks, Tom. Skip. Thanks. Yes, you want. Thanks. Yes, Annie. Anybody else? Okay. Let's take a few moments now to prepare our hearts for the call to worship. Brothers and sisters, our God greets us with his salutation, grace, mercy, and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And he calls us to worship him this evening through the words of Psalm 118, verses 1 through 4. Now let's stand for God's call to worship. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. Let Israel say, His steadfast love endures forever. Let the house of Aaron say, His steadfast love endures forever. Let those who fear the Lord say, His steadfast love endures forever. Let's remain standing now and sing praise to God using number 313, Angels from the Realms of Glory.
and in petition, to confess what you reveal to us from your word, to hear your word read and proclaimed, and to marvel at the goodness of our God and Savior. We thank you for this special season of the year where we remember the incarnation and the advent, the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ into history. And we pray that, that this season would not just be another season for us, but a season of new growth, new spiritual growth, going deeper into who you are and what you've promised and being further equipped to serve you in all spheres of life and to bear witness to the wonderful hope that we have in Christ. We ask that you would be with us in this worship service and use all the elements to that end. We pray that you'd fill us with your spirit and forgive us of our sins. For we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Having praised God, we come now to confess our faith before God. We do this in two stages. First, using the confession of faith of the global and historic church, the church universal. The words of the Apostles' Creed. And I will put the question to us and then let us respond together, confessing our faith. Brothers and sisters in Jesus Christ, what do all Christians believe? I believe in God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. He suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended into hell. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of God, the Father Almighty. From there he will come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. And now the second part of our confession of faith, using words from the, the confession of the Reformation Church, from Shorter Catechism Numbers 27 through 28. I'll ask the questions in bold. And again, let's respond together, confessing our faith using these answers. 
Shorter Catechism, question number 27. Wherein did Christ's humiliation consist? Christ's humiliation consisted in his being born, in that in a low condition, made under the law, undergoing the miseries of this life, the wrath of God, and the cursed death of the cross, in being buried and continuing under the power of death for a time. And now question 28, and notice how it switches from past tense in 27 now to present tense in 28. Wherein consisteth Christ's exaltation? Christ's exaltation consisteth in his rising again from the dead on the third day, in ascending up into heaven, in sitting at the right hand of God the Father, and in coming to judge the world at the last day. Amen. And now is our psalm for this evening. We're going to sing Psalm 8b. Let's stand together and sing praise to God using Psalm 8b. Let us pray. O Lord, our Lord, how excellent is your name in all of the earth. We give you praise for all that you have made in your work of creation, for all that you have done in your many works of providence, and especially in your great work of salvation, sending your Son, Jesus, to be our Savior and to be... um, the king, the heir of all things, the ruler over the ends of the earth. Lord, you did send him to be for a little while lower than the angels in taking our nature upon himself, never ceasing to be the God of the angels above them all, and yet entering into flesh and blood, taking it upon himself, a true body and soul, so that he could live and die and rise again from the dead for us and inherit in eternity a glory like that which he has possessed from eternity. As King of kings and Lord of lords, we are so thankful that this is our Savior and our King, the Lord Jesus Christ. Lord, we come to you in his name asking that you would receive our prayers because of all that he has done for us and not because of anything that we have done for you. Lord, as we um, bring you these requests tonight, we 
ask, first of all, for your blessings on the work of the proclamation of the gospel and the planting of churches, um, both here at home in the U.S. and abroad on the foreign mission field. Today we pray especially for Pastor Jeremy Baker and the OPC church plant in Yuma, Arizona. There's Jeremy's wife, Gwen, and their family. We thank you for the encouragements that you have given to them recently, for the membership class that you've blessed, and for the uh, family planning to join, and the covenant youth who are planning to make their uh, public profession of faith. Lord, this is good news for this church. We thank you for your covenant faithfulness, for the way people are joining with them, and the way their children are growing. Um, Lord, we thank you for the people who have been visiting. We thank you for the men identified in officer training. We pray that you would please provide for this church plant elders and deacons who would be faithful, qualified, and most of all, godly men to lead this church into the future. We pray um, for the work of foreign missions as well. Especially today, Lord, we pray for uh, relatively new missionary associate, Jed Homan, uh, who has recently gone to the field in Nikale, in Karamoja, Uganda. Um, Lord, we uh, pray you would please um, strengthen him for his work, especially as he is uh, far from home now, uh, perhaps for the, for the first time. Um, during this time of year, we pray that you would please um, give him uh, joy in the work that you've given to him there, um, taking care of many of the practical, physical needs of the mission facilities, uh, Lord, as he's recently reported on uh, some very difficult and unpleasant work that he had to do, cleaning out their water tank from a, a bird that had died and polluted it. Lord, we pray that these labors of love would be a great blessing to the mission field there to uh, uh, protect its health and safety and well-being. We pray that you would please take care of all of the missionary individuals and families there and especially strengthen them through this uh, time of transition. Um, and Lord, we pray as we have many times that you would please raise up new workers for this foreign field and many others that need uh, workers to go into the harvest. Uh, Lord, only you can ultimately do this. And so we do pray that you would please provide, you would work in the hearts of uh, men and their families, uh, that you would call to these foreign fields. And even now, Lord, be doing that work of preparing uh, these laborers. And Lord, for Jed, we ask that you please bless him in his work and and uh, strengthen him for the rest of his um, uh, term there. Lord, as we turn to some of the requests brought tonight, we pray um, especially for those who are traveling this week, those who will be traveling uh, tomorrow especially, and also the remainder of the holiday season. We ask that you would please um, grant safety on the roads and in the air and bring everyone safely uh, back to their homes. Um, bless these times, especially with extended family. Um, Lord, uh, so many times this time of year we spend time with people we uh, see only occasionally. And Lord, there are opportunities for these relationships to deepen and to grow or to be broken and strained. There are also gospel opportunities. And so, Lord, we pray that you would help your people to um, be wise, to um, have words and attitudes full of the grace and truth of Jesus Christ for all of these many family interactions. Um, Lord, we pray for um, the guyers that you would please strengthen them as they've had many uh, sleepless nights recently. We pray that Elijah would be able to fall into a um, regular sleep schedule so that his parents can have rest, especially Janine. We pray that you would please strengthen them through the uh, challenges of the, um, some of the extended family relationships, and we ask that you would please um, encourage their hearts as they um, uh, come to near the end of Janine's mother's visit with them. Um, please uh, just give them um, grace and joy as they continue this uh, new adventure of parenthood. Lord, as we think uh, beyond... This um, near circle of our local church family, Lord, we pray for those abroad, many of whom we don't know, um, Lord, many of whom are our brothers and sisters who are laboring, lonely, suffering in different places, facing many challenges, especially, Lord, as Skip's reminded us, we pray for military chaplains, 
um, stationed all over the world. We pray that they would be faithful to the gospel, especially under many pressures to compromise. We pray that they would um, have the words to say to men and women who are going through great times of crisis uh, and uncertainty, loss. Um, And Lord, we pray that you'd help them to be ready in season and out of season to preach the word. And please encourage them for their work, Lord. Draw near to them in it. And Lord, as you have reminded us, we do pray for um, the conflict in Ukraine. We pray that you would please bring a just peace, Lord. As the Lord Jesus, the Prince of Peace and the King over all kingdoms, um, reigns on his throne, Lord, we pray that um, his peace would be brought to bear on that area. You would bring an end to the violence, that you would please uh, comfort those who are suffering and during um, great challenges, cold, uh, and many other afflictions during this time. We pray that you would please especially strengthen the Hakka boards for their work of um, evangelism, shepherding, service, uh, compassion, and care for those in great need. And we pray that the gospel of Jesus Christ would be made known in that land and that you would use even this time of great turmoil uh, to bring the furtherance of your kingdom there um, and throughout that region of Europe. We thank you for hearing our prayers. Lord, we ask that you would bless the remainder of our worship tonight. We pray you would bless the Montgomery family. Uh, Bless Jeremiah as he preaches to us. Bless their family as they enjoy this visit here in Pennsylvania and as uh, you prepare them for the remaining um, ministry and life and service and uh, time together as a family um, back at their home in Ohio. Uh, We ask all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Let me invite you now to stand with me as we turn to God's Word. Our first scripture reading this evening is going to be at the end of the Bible, Revelation chapter 21 and 22, just a couple verses from each of those chapters. Of course, all of scripture is God-breathed and worthy of our attention, and certainly as we get to the end of a year, the last two chapters of the scriptures are particularly worth our attention in their entirety. But for the sake of time this evening, we're just going to read the first five verses of Revelation 21 and 22. Then we'll switch to our sermon text in 1 John chapter 2. Sounds like everybody's there. So let's, before we read, let's pray for illumination. Let us ask the Lord's blessing. Our God, we're so thankful to you for your word. It is a lamp to our feet. It is a light to our path. We're so thankful that you, the God of all creation, have breathed out your word in the languages of human beings, and that you have not only breathed it out, but that you made sure that it was committed to writing, and then you preserved it down through the ages by your singular care and providence, and then you provided faithful translators so that we could hear, even we here tonight, State College, Pennsylvania, Christmas evening, 2022, could hear the word of God in the language of our hearts. And so we pray, our God, that we would hear it with attention but we would also hear it with illumination that you would press these words into our hearts. We ask this knowing that you are able to do this and that your word never returns to you void. You've promised that. And we ask this in faith and in Jesus' name. Amen. Revelation 21, verses 1 through 5. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain any more. For the former things have passed away. And he was seated on the throne, said, Behold, I am making all things new. 
Also, he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And now down to chapter 22, verses 1 through 5. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the midst of the street of the city. Also on either side of the river, the tree of life with its 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and his servants will worship him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads, and night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. And now please turn with me back just a few books. John's first letter, chapter 2, 1 John chapter 2. And here we will be reading verses 15 through 17, and then 23 through 25. 1 John chapter 2, verses 15 through 17, and then 23 through 25. The Apostle John writes to us, Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, the pride of life, is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. And now down to verse 23. No one who denies the Son has the Father. Whoever confesses the Son has the Father also. Let what you heard from the beginning abide in you. If what you heard from the beginning abides in you, then you too will abide in the Son and in the Father. And this is the promise that he has made to us. Eternal life. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God endures forever. Please be seated. Well, we are certainly in a season, and perhaps for some of us, even on the day itself, where we are giving and receiving gifts. Although I was informed by one of the younger members right before the service that in their family they are waiting until tomorrow to exchange gifts. That is a perfectly admirable and good idea. But some of us perhaps have already given gifts, and for most of us this is not our first Seasonal rodeo, so to speak. We have given and received gifts before. And as you give and receive gifts during seasons like this, you know that sometimes the gifts exceed expectations. And sometimes they don't. They disappoint. When I was a younger, a younger human being, sometimes I would be given socks or clothing. And although those things are very needful and important... They were not the most exciting sort of gift that you could receive as a 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, 15 year old. Um, and they would always come in that same box from Macy's or in my day from Sears or JCPenney, the really thin white cardboard. And in my home, we would call it the white box of disappointment. But other times, other times the gifts really exceeded expectations. One of my favorites was when I was about 10 or 11 years old, I I I was given for Christmas as a gift the exact same Swiss Army knife that one of my TV heroes, MacGyver, had. That was a good year. That was a good gift. And so the reason I'm bringing this up this, this evening, this idea of the gift being either a disappointment or exceeding expectations, is I want to challenge us right from the beginning to think about this. When we view the promises of the gospel and the gift that God has for us in Christ... How do you view that gift? Do you view it as that which will exceed your expectations, or do you view it sort of like the box of socks at Christmas? Well, something I need, but honestly not that exciting. That's the question I want us to begin with, and I want us to keep on our front burner as we go through this passage this evening. This this gift of God, verse 25 says, this is the promise that he made to us. This is the gift, eternal life. 
God's faithfulness to his promises. It's the backbone of the Bible. It's the backbone of this season. The core of all of God's promises is this extraordinary gift, eternal life. And yet even John himself, the Apostle John, in writing of this, also tells and also acknowledges to us in verses 15 through 17 that even Christians who have the gift are tempted by the things of this world. And by the things of this world, he means we are tempted to live life as though there were no God, as though this world were all this is. We are tempted to live for the world. He has to warn. The same people that he's telling about the promise of eternal life, he has to warn and say, don't love the world as if it were all there is. And so if that were the case in the first century, if even believers were tempted to love the things of this world more than we love the Lord, is it not still a temptation for us today? And why is that? Why is it the case among us, even among long-term mature Christians? Is it possible that we see even this amazing gift of eternal life as something like a white box of disappointment when we should see it as that which will exceed all expectations? Or perhaps you know that the gospel promise is good, but you struggle really with just that existential certainty to know that I really have this. It doesn't connect to your life the way it should. One of the extraordinary things about 1 John chapter 2, verse 25, and we really are going to focus on this verse, is that it answers and it brings good news to bear on both fronts. It helps us to really, it invites us to really think about the magnitude of God's gift. It also really helps us to, to understand how it connects to our own lives. And so that's what we're going to look at here briefly with our time this evening. First, we're going to look at the good gift itself eternal life and what that means. Then we're going to look at how it comes to us. John tells us it is a promise. And we're going to see why that is such good news. And then we're going to talk about the one who gives it, God himself. And those are going to be the three things we're really going to focus in on tonight from this verse. John says that God promises us eternal life. And we hear that phrase, and if you've spent any time in Christian churches, and as I'm looking around here this evening, I don't see anybody who's a first-time visitor to Resurrection Church. So you've all heard before this idea of eternal life. But do we really grasp the magnitude of the goodness of that gift? And it's always important to ask when we're thinking about any sort of biblical phrase, don't don't fill in that meaning or that image with, with what you think the word means. But ask yourself always, how does the Bible define this concept? And so we want to ask tonight, just first and foremost, how does the Bible define the concept of life? Before we, before we really stretch that out into eternity, we should be clear on what does Scripture mean by life? And the first thing I want you to note this evening is that when the Bible talks about life, particularly human life, it's not just talking about staying alive. It's not just talking about that sort of animal existence. Yes, indeed, in Genesis 1 and 2, we read about the living creatures and God making the creatures to live. But Genesis 1 and 2 are also very clear that for human beings, life is more than mere animal existence, than the mere satisfaction of our appetites. And in fact, Genesis 2 in particular shows us four aspects, four particular blessings that makes human life special. And those four blessings are place, purpose, people, and potential. Think about it. God gave human beings a special place, didn't he? He said, take dominion over the whole world, but then he put them in a very particular place, right? The Garden of Eden. So he gave them a place. He also gave them a purpose. When he put them in the Garden of Eden, he did put them in there to do what? To work it and to keep it. So he gave them a purpose. He also gave them people. He, he, didn't, he said it is not good for the man to be alone. And so he made him a helper. So he gave human beings a community, Adam and Eve together. And he also gave them potential. Potential to go beyond what was immediately in front of them and to stretch on into eternal life. And if you read Genesis 2 carefully, you pick this up. Genesis chapter 2, verse 9 says that God planted the garden. He put them in the garden. And in the midst of the garden were the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Right? You remember this? And then in verses 16 and 17, he says, You may eat from any tree in the garden, except which one? The tree of the knowledge of good and evil. But that means they were also allowed to eat from which tree? The tree of life. 
So there was a potential as they were in this place and as they were together and as they were cultivating and working and keeping the garden that they could have eaten of the tree of life and continued on going further up and further into their purpose, their place and their people into the goodness of God forever. So human life, when, when scripture speaks of life, it doesn't just mean endless humdrum existence. It means life with a place, life with people, life with purpose, life with potential. And you know what's really interesting, brothers and sisters, is that even today, secular experts on, on mental health, for example, just this past summer read a book on, on recovery from mental health crises. A friend of mine was, was going through something really hard, and so I was trying to just read a little more so that I could understand how to, how to be there for him. And in this book, it said, people that are recovering from mental health struggles, they need three things most of all. Can you guess what those things were? People place, and purpose. And we all know from ordinary life that we also want that fourth thing, that potential to, to, to make new discoveries, to make new friends. Without, without a potential for growth and development, life loses its flavor. And Scripture has been telling us this all along. And think about just how much, how much of our life really revolves around those four things. Your deepest joys, your deepest sorrows, a lot of times our biggest questions all center on these four things. Questions like, where do I belong? What am I here for? What is life about? What will happen to me when I die? Those are questions of people, place, purpose, potential. The, the joys, the greatest joys that we feel as human beings most of the time. Being in a special place and saying there is a sense of presence here. Being with special people. Doing, doing your job in such a way that you could say, as Eric Liddell in the movie Chariots of Fire said, when I run, I feel his pleasure. When you're doing your job and you feel a sense of purpose. All of those things rotating around those same four points. And also our deepest sorrows. Have you ever had a friend or a loved one betray you or hurt you? Have you ever had to leave a, a home or a job that you really loved? Our deepest joys our sharpest pains, all the, the jagged edges, as well as the biggest smiles, they all come from these four things. Purple. Yeah, purple. People, place, purpose, and potential. And it's very important, and I'm taking a little time on this, because you need to understand that we're not the only ones who know this about life. The world, and the flesh, and the devil also know that this is what human life needs and so the world, the flesh, and the devil will work the angles and especially those jagged edges because the single goal of the world, the flesh, and the devil is to make life unbearable and to make eternal life unbelievable. If you've ever struggled to really think that eternal life would be a good thing, if perhaps you've, you've, ever, you've ever struggled, maybe when you were a kid you thought, man, heaven... I know I don't want to go to hell, but heaven seems like listening to an eternal, like a bad sermon that I have to listen to forever. Or skeptics will say, well, it's just a fairy tale. It's because the world, the flesh, and the devil are playing on these four questions. People, place, purpose, potential. And we have to, we have to resist that with the gospel. And this is why we read from Revelation 21 and 22. Because what the Bible reveals is that the promise of eternal life and the gift that God is giving us is the life that we long for. But it is made permanent, it is made clean, and it is real, and it is coming. And if you were paying attention as we were reading Revelation 21 or 22, and go back or go back and read it, you will find that in those verse, in those passages, what is revealed to us as the great gift that is coming for the church at the end of time is a place with almost unimaginable purpose people, and potential. So let, me just read it. So let me just read you a couple phrases from those passages again. Think about this. A place where God himself will wipe away every tear from your eyes, where there will be no more death, no more goodbyes. A place where we will see God's face and reign forever and ever. No sin, no stains, no stress. And it will not be static if you've ever been tempted to, be, to fear that heaven would be like an eternal church service with really bad preaching. No, remember. Because God is good and God is infinite. Heaven will be a life of infinite going further up 
and further in to the goodness of God. The more we learn, the more there will be to explore. There is no bottom to the goodness of God. There is no walls to the goodness of God. His goodness, His wonders, His marvels are endless. And that's what the life to come will be, a perfect place with perfect people, with an amazing purpose and unlimited potential. Does that sound good? It's one thing to say it, though. How do we get ourselves to believe it? It's hard to believe, isn't it? Hard to imagine. Let me give you just one tip before we move on. If you want to learn, if you want to start to train yourself to think about what heaven will be like, one thing you can do is you can look at the life of Jesus. Go back and reread the Gospels in 2023 and pay particular attention to the way Jesus created islands of human joy around himself. Yes, there was conflict in the life of Jesus. He had conflict with those who hated him. But the people that loved him and the people that joined themselves to him was like an island of joy floating through a broken world. Now imagine an entire world where Jesus is at the center, where Jesus controls all things and all things are ordered according to the love of God in Christ. We would be truly humble and truly joyful forever and ever. That's the life that is promised. That's the magnitude That's what John means when he says, this is what he's promised us, eternal life. Now, perhaps even as we begin to imagine it, we start to to feel a little bit of that existential disconnect. You know, how do it sounds great, but how do I know it's really going to be mine? And this is something that I know from experience. Even people who spend their whole life in the church can sometimes have that, that static of the soul, that, that existential flickering of hope. For many years, I myself, even though I grew up in the church, really struggled to know whether this was just true around me or whether it was also true in me. But you know what changed my life was when I came to grasp another really important concept that is here in this verse, and that is the concept of promise. How does all of this good gift get to us? Do we have to persuade God in some way that we're worthy? No. John tells us, and Scripture tells us throughout its pages, that it is a promise. And it is a promise that God gives to us. And so this is the second thing you want to see. Why is all of this good news, not just a good gift, but good news? is because it is something that we receive through promise. The idea of promise is the key to unlocking all of the goodness of the gospel. Indeed, it is, it is the key to unlocking all the goodness of the Bible. And you can't see it in any of the English translations that we have here with us tonight. The ESV falls down on this a little bit. Even the New American Standard falls down on this a little bit. But if you look at verse 25, it really should literally be translated this. And this is the promise that he himself promised to us. The word promise is repeated. It's not just a noun, but it's also a verb. This is the promise that he promised to us. What is John doing? He is emphasizing that this is a promise. And what is a promise? Is a promise good advice? Is a promise a prescription? No, a promise is an announcement. It is good news. And throughout Scripture, at at every important turning point, the hinge is always a promise of God. Think about it. After the fall of Adam and Eve, God comes and what does he do? He makes a promise. When God calls Abram out from the nations after the Tower of Babel, he makes a promise. When when the kingdom of Judah was in this death spiral and Isaiah the prophet is ministering, what does he announce? He announces a promise that the virgin will conceive and bear a son. And he'll call his name Emmanuel. And Jeremiah, the prophet of the later decline, when he promises that a day is coming when God will make a new covenant, At the heart of every covenant is what? The promises of God. And so the very first thing you need to use to apply this to yourself is that this gift is a promise. It is is good news. And that has some really important applications for us tonight. If it is a promise, then it can bring an end to our uncertainty. If the gospel is a promise... How do you receive a promise? What do you have to do to receive a promise? You simply believe it. You simply believe it. Because when you believe the promise, you believe the promiser. You connect to that person. It was about seven years ago, seven and a half or so years ago, 
were sitting in our home in Stormstown. It was 2015, and we were doing family devotions. And one of my kids said, Daddy, you're always telling us to trust Jesus. That's true. We were. Not just me. Beth, too. But he focused in on me, and he said, Daddy, you're always telling us to trust Jesus. But, but how do I do that? How do I, actually, how do I actually trust Jesus? And the answer that we gave them is the answer that we still give. How do you trust a person? You believe that they will keep their promises to you. Promise brings certainty. You connect to the promiser by believing the promise. This is what Scripture says. Abraham believed God. It was counted to him as righteousness. Our catechism on the question of faith, what is saving faith in Jesus Christ? We receive and rest upon him alone for salvation as what? As he is offered to us, as he is promised to us in the gospel. And friends, it changed my life forever when I realized that faith is not a special work that I had to do to persuade God to give me Jesus. But rather, faith was simply believing that Jesus would keep God's promises to me. And so if there's ever a time when when sin or just fear chills your heart and makes you wonder, do I really have this good gift? Heaven sounds great, but maybe it's not mine. If you ever feel that, even a little bit, kids, even you at young age, Here's what you do. You go to Jesus right away and you say, Jesus, I still believe you will keep your promises to me. Because the moment you believe, the Bible says, just like Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. So when we believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, we have eternal life. And if you believe that, and if you know that you have that eternal life, then it should, it should rewire your whole existence even now. The cool thing about this is you don't have to wait until heaven to have a new sense of place, purpose, people, and potential. When you are experiencing the jagged edges of this life, when you have to leave a place you, don't, you didn't want to leave, when you have friends or loved ones who betray you, you can remember that although this hurts, and maybe it hurts for the rest of your life, there is a better world coming. When God himself will wipe away all your tears. It takes the pressure off. You don't have to squeeze every ounce of joy out of this life. Because this life is not all that's coming. You have a life that is hidden with God in Christ. And so even if you must face disappointments in this world. There is a better world coming where all the disappointments will come untrue. It also then helps us with this very real problem that John brings up in verses 15 through 17. The problem of disordered affections, desires that are out of control, the desire to turn a good thing into a God thing, the desire to enjoy the world in such a way as if there were no God, the the, the problem of sin and self-worship. Notice how John does this, and I want you to see this before we end. Verse 15 through 17, when he's talking, a very famous passage, do not love the world or the things of this world. What does he set in opposition? Look at the text in verses 15 through 17. What does he set as the opposite of the love of the world. The end of verse 15. If anyone loves the world, what is not in him? The love of the Father. Okay. So if you have the love of the Father, you can push out the love of the world. Well, how do we get the love of the Father? How do we get the Father in us? Go down to verse 23. This is why we skipped around a little bit. No one who denies the Son has the Father, but whoever confesses the Son has the Father. What does it mean to confess the Son, to say, I believe in Jesus? What does it mean to believe in Jesus? To believe that he'll keep his promises to you. Okay, well, how do we we make sure that we keep the Father in us so that we can fight sin? Look at verse 24. Let what you have heard from the beginning abide in you. If what you heard from the beginning abides in you, then you too will abide in the Son and in the Father. In other words, if if what you heard from the beginning stays in you, The love of the Father will stay in you. And then that will be your fuel, your fight against disordered desires. It will help you keep life in perspective and kill and push sin out. Well, how do we abide in what we have heard from the beginning? Well, what is that which we have heard from the beginning? Verse 25, this is the promise that he made to us. Eternal life. You want to fight sin? You want to reorder your desires in the right way? You want to keep the world from taking over your life as though there were no God? Just like the promises of the gospel are the key to spiritual certainty, so the promises of the gospel are the key to expelling sin. 
sin's attraction will smolder away in the fire of God's promises. This is what you tell yourself when sin is tempting you and when the love of the world is tempting you to make compromises. You say, no, the life that Jesus has promised me is better than the lies that you are offering. You use the promises to fight sin. In fact, this is a rule worth remembering as long as you live. The best way to avoid embracing sin's lies is to warm your heart in the promises of Christ. Feed your heart with the promises of Jesus. And you will have no appetite for the lies of sin. The reason that the world makes so many inroads into our hearts, brothers and sisters, is we have not sufficiently fed upon the promises of the gospel. But John is calling us to change course and to remind ourselves every day that this is the promise that he promised to us, eternal life. That's something we can all do. It isn't easy, but it is simple. Now, I know at this point, probably, and we're almost done, but just a couple more things to note. At this point, probably many of us are saying, you're right, this sounds good, I think it would even work, but the reality is I mess up a lot. Any of you ever mess up? There are holes even in my faith. My faith isn't that strong. Maybe I'm not going to make it. There's one other thing you need to see from this text tonight to encourage you. And that is that it's not up to you to hold yourself. God himself is the one who holds us. And you can see this again. You can't see it in the English Standard Version. But if you have a New American Standard Version, I know this will warm at least a few hearts. You can see it. Because the Greek here, literally, it's in, there's an emphatic form here that doesn't come out in the English Standard Version. But in verse 25... Verse 25 should literally be translated as follows. And this is the promise that he himself promised to us. Eternal life. There is an emphatic form there. There's a he himself. And that should make your soul sit straight up in your chair. Because anytime that kind of construction shows up in scripture, something big is happening. God is on the move. If you go back to Exodus chapter 3, when God appears to Moses in the burning bush and he says, I am who I am. But if you read it in the Greek translation of the Old Testament, can you guess what it is? I myself am. You go back to Isaiah chapter 43, verse 25, where God says, I am he who blots out your transgressions. If you read it in the Greek translation of the Old Testament, it is I myself am. And when Jesus was in the garden of Gethsemane and they were trying to arrest him and he said, who are you looking for? And the English says, I am he, and they all fall down. Again, the Greek is, I myself am. And so when the emphatic construction comes in, our souls should sit up straight because God is on the move. And there's an amazing implication here. When John says this is the promise that he himself promised us, he is telling us that the gospel promise is an extension of God himself. This is, this is even how promises work in ordinary life. You can never separate the promise from a person who gives it. A promise is only as good as the one who gives it. But if God is making the promise, how good is the promise? Infinitely good. And didn't Jesus himself even say that when he gives a person eternal life, John chapter 10, verse 28, no one can snatch them out of his hands. Not the world, not the flesh, not the devil, not even the holes in your own faith. The moment you receive Christ's promise, you receive Him. And the moment you receive Him, you put your heart in His hands. And the moment your heart goes in His hands, His hands go around your heart. And He proclaims over even the weakest faith this invincible promise that I have given them eternal life. No one can snatch them out of my hands. And this is such good news. He is the one who holds us fast. And not we ourselves. And so as we come to the end of this holiday season, or this, I know some of you haven't opened your presents till tomorrow. I haven't forgotten. But as we're nearing the end of this holiday season, and as we're nearing the end of this day, I just want to remind you and encourage you with these last words. The gift of eternal life is real. It is better than anything you can imagine. 
And it doesn't depend on you to persuade God to give it to you. God has given it via promise. All you have to do is believe Jesus. And if you believe that Jesus will keep his promises to you, then he has promised that he will hold you fast and he will never let you go. God is so much better than we imagine. And the promise of the gospel is that the holes in his hands have made a promise to us of holy joy and a wholeness without any holes left. Amen. Let's pray. Our God, we are thankful to you for your promises. They are amazing and they are beyond our ability to comprehend in this life. But you give us glimpses, you give us helps, you give us portions of Scripture that pull back the curtain just a little bit. Help us to believe your promises. Help us to meditate upon them. Help us to so fill our hearts and lives with the fullness that you have promised that sin can find no foothold, that the world, the flesh, and the devil can get no grip on us, and that they would attract us no more. Forgive us our sins, we pray. In Christ's name, amen.